This podcast is brought to you by the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges. On today's episode, we're going to take another look at some of the work done by recent honorees of the Blavatnik Awards for Young Scientists, which are given annually by the Blavatnik Family Foundation in collaboration with the Academy to early career scientists here in the U.S. as well as the U.K. and Israel, who are all doing extraordinary work to bring new thinking to some of the biggest problems facing our world today. A few episodes ago, we heard about how some recent Blavatnik Award winners and finalists were revolutionizing our understanding of climate change. And today, we're going to hear about equally innovative work in a totally different field, the study of infectious disease. Specifically, the world's battle against epidemic viruses, such as Zika, which has been so scary for so many over the past few years. Now, Zika is an interesting virus for a number of reasons. The first of which is that we knew about the Zika virus for many decades before we realized how harmful it could be. Here's Dr. Matthew Evans, an associate professor of microbiology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital here in New York. He was a 2008 finalist for a Blavatnik Regional Award. The first time this virus was identified was in 1947 in Uganda. Uh, this was in a, a monkey that was actually put into the Zika forest to try to uh, survey the uh, uh, incidence of yellow fever virus. So this monkey was in a cage, it got probably got infected by a mosquito bite with the virus that turned out not to be yellow fever virus, but was this new virus that they deemed Zika virus instead. For the last, what is it, 70 or 80 years that people have known it existed, it didn't appear to cause any disease. So there, it was clear that it was highly prevalent in Africa, but uh, at least it wasn't doing something bad. Now, that may sound funny, to have a virus in your system that doesn't make you sick, but it's actually quite common. A huge percentage of viruses move through their hosts without much or any effect at all. And if you think about it, this makes sense, because viruses are completely dependent on their host organism for their survival. So if we get sick and die, any viruses that are in us have lost their place to live. There are plenty of viruses that don't cause disease. The, the infections that we fight off very fast and very effectively, we never notice. Um, the ones that are capable of slipping past our defenses and replicating more aggressively, like the flu is really good at doing, uh, we notice because we get sick. But then there are plenty of things that we never know that we have um, that may never cause damage. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, if you really think about it in terms of what a virus is out to accomplish, I, you know, you don't want to anthropomorphize these too much, but it's, um, you know, it's just not the goal of a virus to kill you. It's the goal is to get to the next host more than anything else. We all became aware of Zika, though, when it turned out to be not as benign as originally thought. About two years ago, a terrifying correlation appeared between the Zika virus and a kind of birth defect called microcephaly, a condition where babies are born with a much smaller than average head, not allowing the brain to develop properly. It's a heartbreaking condition that leaves children with a myriad of cognitive and physical problems, usually unable to care for themselves when they become adults. So in 2015, Zika became much more prevalent in Brazil. There was a coincidence of microcephaly that developed, and 
uh, people really tried to explore every possibility. Uh, it's, you know, there were some uh, ideas about a pesticide that was newly used or something added to the water that might be causing problems. Both of those were completely re uh, uh, refuted after careful examination. And the only thing that became clear was that Zika virus was associated with the majority of these cases of microcephaly. Here's Dr. Pardis Sabeti, a professor of systems biology and epidemiology at Harvard University, the Broad Institute, and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. She's been a finalist for a Blavatnik National Award twice in both 2016 and 2017. It does seem to be linked to microcephaly, and so even though it's a small number of individuals that get it, um, I don't think any woman who's thinking about having a child would not be very frightened of that sort of outcome um, and the devastating effect that it would have on their children. This is all particularly scary because Zika is transmitted by mosquito bite, making it extremely hard to protect yourself against. Who can go an entire summer without ever being bitten by a mosquito? It might not be impossible, but it's awfully close. The good news, at least here in the United States, is for now it only seems to be transmitted by mosquitoes of a couple of particular species, Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopicti. These are also responsible for transmitting other viral infections like dengue and yellow fever, and they only live in tropical areas. But Zika has become a concern for those of us who live in more temperate climates, too, because climate change is pushing these insects and the diseases they carry further and further north. So the big question is, why is it causing disease now? It's possible that it's been causing disease all along and that it's just been hard to diagnose as related to this virus. Um, and that's, that's certainly something that people are looking into. But it's also possible that the virus has changed as it's been uh, transmitted throughout the world. And now we have a new virus that's more capable of causing disease. That's a complex and tricky question. But to many who study infectious diseases, we're closer now than we've ever been to achieving the kind of holistic understanding of viruses that would allow us to answer it and questions like it much more easily. And the reason it seems like a solvable problem, now more than ever before, is because we know so much more now than we ever did about genetics. Our ability to sequence and manipulate genomes allows for the possibility of all kinds of new tools for diagnosis and treatment. Here's Dr. Sabeti talking about viruses and their genomes. Ultimately, anything that, this, that we create of a virus is based on its genome sequence. That genome sequence changes, it changes. Not only is it important to their own biology, but we use them to develop diagnostics and vaccines and therapies. And so all of these um, ways of uh, preventing them and also surveying them, like tracking them and their transmission, are all intertwined with their genomes. So we use that to, in our defense and our offense. So the more we understand it, the better we can develop diagnostics, vaccines, therapies, preventative measures. And viruses are particularly good candidates for genetic treatments because their genomes are incredibly simple. Here's Dr. Evans. Viruses are compact genetic evolution machines. And so they have pretty much just what they need and that, it turns out, really isn't very much at all. To begin with, almost all genomes are made out of DNA, which is then transcribed into RNA. 
But many viruses, including the ones that cause Zika, Ebola, SARS, the flu, polio, measles, and the common cold, don't have DNA at all, just RNA. And they don't even have very much of that. Viruses are so genetically simple that there's an ongoing debate amongst scientists about whether they should even be considered living things. The genome of the Zika virus, for instance, has a little more than 10,000 base pairs, the component parts that make the spokes of the latter shape of DNA or RNA. That may sound like a lot, but it means viruses are orders of magnitude more genetically simple than other things that might make us sick. Let's compare that to bacteria, for instance. The genome of Streptococcus pyogenes, the bacteria that causes strep throat, has almost 2 million base pairs. Another kind of Streptococcus that can cause pneumonia has more than 5 million base pairs. And that simplicity makes viral diseases like Zika much easier targets for genetic treatment than bacterial diseases. So RNA viruses in particular, the ones that only have an RNA genome, are very small genomes. And that's actually something that fascinates us is that they need to do a lot, but they have a very small genome, and so they have to have a really compact amount of uh, functional information stuffed into that genome. And so that's that's actually what a lot of what we study is, uh, how does it accomplish this diverse range of tasks that it needs to be able to infect a suitable host, replicate its, itself, and then make progeny that's capable of going on and infecting new hosts. Dr. Sabetti and her colleagues are trying to tease out new knowledge about the workings of viruses by studying the data embedded directly in their genetic codes. I'm a computational biologist, so I take uh, data from uh, the genome of humans and a lot of microorganisms that infect humans, and I try to decipher them. Um, and uh, my lab um, has folks from physics to computer science to you know, engineering, biology, public health, but we're all trying to really um, use genomic technology to impact uh, the fight against infectious disease and infectious viruses in particular. They do this largely by looking at mutations, which are changes in the genetic code that happen inside an organism or virus, either spontaneously because of errors in transcribing that code from one generation to the next, or because of contact with some external agent that causes mutation, like radiation or some kinds of chemicals. Some mutations are bad, making it harder for the thing affected to continue and reproduce, and some are beneficial, making those things easier. Either way, they're often passed along to any offspring it might have. This is one of the primary drivers of evolution. And it's particularly important to viruses, because mutating is kind of all they do. They don't eat or breathe, they don't sexually reproduce, and they can't move around on their own. The only evolutionary strategy available to them is to mutate. And so they mutate like crazy. This moving target is one of the big challenges to creating effective viral vaccines. It's the reason why, for instance, you need to get a new flu shot every winter. And even then, their effectiveness, according to the Centers for Disease Control, can range anywhere from 10 to 60% in a given year. For example, for influenza, the problem is often we target one form of influenza, um, but then another form pops up. And so how do we capture more of that diversity? How, do we, how are we able to protect against all the types of strains that are circulating? So there's a number of different jumps that we can make to make it um, 
create a more robust immune response that can then lead to this long-term immunity and to capture more different versions of the virus. Interestingly, one of the strategies her lab employs is to try to track the history of these viral mutations by looking for parallel mutations in our own genetic code. The hundreds of thousands of years that we've lived together with viruses have left their mark on our own genomes, specifically in the resistances that we develop to particular strains of viruses by means of our own beneficial mutations. When humans adapt to change to different pressures, it leaves behind a footprint, the way that it happens, that you can pick up in the genome. And this is all the way that we develop these statistical tests to look for interesting phenomena. We can estimate how long a mutation's been around based on how many mutations have happened on the same background that it exists on. If you always see that mutation with the same exact structure around it, it means that there hasn't been that much time that's passed for new mutations or recombination events to reshuffle the background it lies on. So it's like a decay process that happens. So we can essentially date how long a mutation's been around in the genome. This kind of roundabout examination of a virus's natural history is particularly important to the study of Zika, because it's unfortunately proved to be kind of difficult to study directly. There wasn't a lot of data getting generated from Zika. And one of the main problems is uh, it's a hard virus to understand in sequence. It, it doesn't make a lot of copies of itself in, in patients, and it doesn't stay around a long time. So it's really hard to figure out sort of it's hidden, it's um, hiding in, in the system. And so it's not sort of it's not making a lot of copies that we can pick up easily in the blood or in urine or elsewhere. So um, that's the challenge. And it doesn't have to stay around a long time to cause pretty bad effect. So that's the really big challenge of how do we understand the virus if we can't find it. Um, and so my group, ultimately, a lot of pe different folks reached out to us, um, you know, seeking our help, and, and we became more and more interested, and then we, we jumped in. And we, try, we par made partnerships uh, with many folks and ended up getting samples from 10 different countries in the Americas that were affected. Um, and began work on trying to understand how to sequence the virus and found other partners around the world and all together kind of just chipped in and worked on it. In the end, our group was able to sequence 110 genomes of the virus from 10 different countries to be able to start shedding light on the virus diversity, how long it's been around, tracking its transmission into the United States, into the, into the Americas. We have partnerships around the world, too. So the collective effort that's not only my lab, but the, all of our partners in West Africa and beyond is, um, you know, is, is a pretty massive team. And it, it takes a village, it takes a, a, a large team to do these things. And through this work, they've been able to accurately recreate Zika's progress as it moved from animals into people, then from Africa to the New World, and then through South America and northward. Invaluable information for those who are trying to curb the disease's spread and mitigate its effects. Dr. Evans's lab is a good example of a team on the front lines of trying to build new treatments for Zika. They're using modern genetic engineering techniques to forcibly mutate samples of the virus, with the idea that by studying the effects of these changes, they can come to a more complete understanding of the virus's underlying genetic mechanisms. We are the people that tear apart the machine that is the virus and try to figure out how it functions. So our favorite thing to do is to take a virus and change something in its genomic uh, sequence to something else and see what happens to the virus and its capacity to function. 
Well, there's like 10 proteins, 11 proteins in the Zika virus genome. And so some of them are proteins we understand very well. Like they're a protein that is involved in physically replicating the Zika virus genome in a host cell. Some of them have less well understood functions and, and we'd like to explore what those functions are more. And the best way that we like to do that is to change the sequence and see what happens. So um, my one of my old advisors, uh, Steve Goff from Columbia, used this term wreck and check, which is just make a change and check to see what it happens, what happens to the, the viral life cycle. And that is hugely informative where you say, uh, we think this protein might be involved in assembling new virions. Let's make a bunch of changes to it and see if the virus can still make new virions or particles. Because we want to know if that sequence is important for this event. And so it, it's, uh, you know, it's, I think it, what uh, the Spetty Lab is doing is saying, what are all the Zika virus sequences in the world? And how can we track what sequence changes occurred when the virus started to cause disease. Um, what we're trying to do is kind of the opposite of that, where we're saying we have this sequence of this virus. If we change it, does it still cause disease? And this work could have all kinds of far-reaching effects on our ability to understand and fight Zika and other diseases like it. I have very, very basic science interests, which is just how does the virus function? You know, it's. It has to accomplish a, a huge number of tasks. It's entering new host cells, it's replicating within those host cells and making new progeny while it's suppressing host responses. And it only has a, a limited number of viral proteins to do that. And so I just want to take apart those functions. Then it's it's actually, you know, there's a whole lot of levels to that. You can survey the sequences that are around and know where the dangerous viruses and where the, the safer, less dangerous viruses are. And at least that will tell you where, what you need to worry about. But I think the most important thing is to actually drive some kind of therapy where you can say, uh, you know, this, uh, this activity of this enzyme or this protein is, is detrimental. Is there a way you could develop a therapy to counteract that activity? And at least it tells you what your target is. Here's Dr. Sabetti. I think with Zika uh, and with m many of these viruses, we're at a place where the technological capacity exists but has not been leveraged in the right way to solve the problem, right? That, that fundamentally there's genomic technologies. We see how we could diagnose Zika in any patient, but we don't. We still can't. We, we cannot. In a lot of cases, we, we can't pick up Zika in the person when it may be in there. So, um, so we haven't done it yet, but we have the capacity uh, to do so, right? So all of the pieces are in place. It just needs to be put together in the right way. Um, and the vaccines are like promising, and, um, uh, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done. The continued work of both of these amazing researchers and many others like them has been given invaluable support by the recognition of the Blavatnik Awards. I mean, it was, it was uh, probably great on a few different levels. One was that it was an affirmation that I had at least done maybe some of the right things up to that point. And, you know, we're, we're always struggling and to get some kind of uh, recognition is always reassuring. But it also was career building in many ways. I mean, to be able to say that you were recognized uh, with this award from this prestigious foundation made a big difference in terms of my ability to get grants and get jobs and, and recognized uh, by other you know, steps of the ladder along the way. Uh, I think it's amazing what um, uh, Len Blavatnik and the Blavatnik family are doing for science. Um, 
You know, just by themselves saying science is important and we want to recognize science, scientists, um, it's sending a message. And, um, and the scientists that he's honored are some of the people who I respect the most. Um, and so I'm honored to be part of that group. I think we can eradicate viruses. Um, you know, we've eradicated smallpox. We can, we've largely eliminated polio. There's still work to be done, but um, there are ways we can try to target these things. And, and so I find it's a problem that is solvable. We're really positioned to make a huge impact on how we treat just infections that go around, you know, our, um, uh, our workplaces um, to those that sort of affect the entire world. We can make a huge impact in the way that we diagnose and pick it up early so we can stop its spread and treat it when it happens. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences. It was written and produced by your host, David Hoffman, with scientific and administrative oversight by Dr. Brooke Grindlinger and Kamala Murphy. Special thanks to the experts we interviewed for this episode, Dr. Matthew Evans of the Icon School of Medicine and Dr. Pardis Sabeti of Harvard University. Some of the work discussed in this episode was also presented at the 2017 Blavatnik Science Symposium, held at the Academy on July 17th and 18th, 2017. It was jointly presented by the Academy and the Blavatnik Family Foundation. You can watch and listen to all the presentations given at that event via an Academy e-briefing. Just go to nyas.org and click on e-briefings under News and Publications. www.nyas.org is also where you can go for information about the Academy and all of its programs, as well as to listen to other podcasts like this one. You can also subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts, and follow the Academy on social media, at NYA Sciences on Twitter and Instagram, and the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.